Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, The Life and Death of Tupac. Holla if you hear me, Tupac's rise to fame. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Tupac Shakur's real breakthrough into both music and movies began almost simultaneously with the release of his freshman record, Tupacalypse Now, and the release of his first movie, Juice, which rocketed Tupac to hip-hop fame. He was no longer recognized as just a roadie and backup dancer for Digital Underground. He had carved out a spot in the entertainment industry for himself. Between 1992 and 1994, Tupac would rock the entertainment world, becoming a reckoning force not only on the radio airwaves, but also on the big screen. He would build a solid relationship with up-and-coming filmmaker John Singleton, eventually becoming Singleton's muse and leading actor as the filmmaker developed roles and wrote scripts specifically for Tupac. As Tupac began working on his sophomore record, he began searching for better beats and his music began to transform as he continued finding his own voice in his songs. And the stories he shared in his lyrics became more and more personal. Unfortunately, his troubles continued to plague him as he left the Oakland police assault in his rear view. He could not have foreseen the new troubles on the horizon. Tupac was like a bullet fired from a gun. Once released, his trajectory would continue with full force until it struck something solid. Tupac had a major break early in 1992. A film that John Singleton had written for Ice Cube to star in ran into a snag. When Ice Cube backed out of the movie, Singleton pivoted to Tupac, fresh off of filming Juice, and the young rapper came in and read with Janet Jackson to gauge the chemistry of the two actors on the film. John Singleton was blown away and immediately cast Tupac as Lucky in the film. On April 14, 1992, Tupac began filming Poetic Justice, and his friendship with Janet Jackson blossomed quickly. Tupac was excited to be cast alongside Janet Jackson, and the two struck up an immediate friendship. Can you give us some insight on what it was like, you know, working with Tupac on Poetic Justice? (laughs) Tupac was crazy, and I adored him so, and 
he was one way I think the way people saw him and not to say that that wasn't him but he was also had another side to him where he was fun and silly and he used to call me square all the time I guess because I'm, I'm very quiet I would just sit back and watch and laugh but there were times when he was late for the sin waiting patiently and he's back in his at his hotel probably with some alizé and <laughs> right I'm telling them that he said the longer you knock the longer i'm gonna sit in this bed wow <laughs> honestly i think he's really special or he was very special incredibly talented and, and definitely an icon and i remember when he got dog life, dog life. yeah when we were doing poetic justice it, it was over the weekend and he said he's square and i said yeah He loved it though, but it's, it's, he, for me, he wasn't a diva. And he's just so much talent and so brilliant here. Just yeah. so smart. Tupac felt the movie would allow him to show a softer side of his persona, allowing him to flex his acting muscles in a film that was very different from the violence of Jews. Almost immediately, Tupac began having issues with an extra on the film, and soon Tupac was pulled into an argument on scene that resulted in Maya Angelou, who was on set that day, to engage with Tupac and calm him down. He was in, in, into a big row with another young man. And, uh, and so I, I said to him, uh, may I speak to you? And he was cursing. Ooh, I wouldn't give up. I said, I understand that, but let me speak to you. If these mother, I I got you. However, let me speak to you. And finally, I said, when, when was the last time anyone told you how important you are? Did you know our people stood on auction blocks, were sold, bought and sold? Did you know so that you could stay alive today? And finally, he heard me and stopped talking and started to weep. And I put my arms around him and I walked him back into the arena and he quieted. And I went back to my trailer and Janet Jackson came running and she said, Dr. Angelo, I don't believe you actually spoke to Tupac Shakur. While Tupac's movie career was taking off, he struggled with the record sales of Tupacalypse Now. None of his songs were chart topping and he felt the issue was lack of well-produced beats. He was in competition with heavy hitters like Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, TLC, Mariah Carey. His record sales were stalling out just past 300,000 records sold. As Tupac reached his 21st birthday, many recalled him being shocked that he had even made it to 21. At the Poetic Justice rap party, he met Snoop Dogg and the two became friends. It would be this friendship that would eventually pull Tupac into death row records. On August 22, 1992, Tupac made the fateful decision to drive up to Marin City from Los Angeles in his new Jeep Cherokee with several of his friends. His intent was to go back home and show his old stomping ground some love. His old rap crew, the One Nation MCs, had rebranded as 5150 and he was looking forward to showing Ray Love, his friend from the mic sessions, some love. Unfortunately, there were still some people from the old hood that held animosity about Tupac's recent derogatory interview comments about Marin City and he was confronted at the annual Marin City Music Festival. They went to the carnival. It was like the fest they had, a Marin City Fest. Pac was signing autographs, taking pictures with people, you know, being, you know, Pac, <laughs> not bothering him. And sure enough, it was the same haters from the party that was there. What you doing here? Yeah, you up in there talking about we ain't nothing but dope dealers and drug dealers and all of this. 
And Pa got these little shorties with him, you know, like they they from Oakland. <laughs> and they ain't from Marin City. And these dudes is um, you know, they ain't they don't know these dudes and they they'll set it off in a heartbeat. And you know, one of them, you know, he's the, the guy who's strapped. The other ones weren't holding. And Mo Preem was there and a couple of other uh, Oakland cats was up there. So, and he had some dudes with him that was from Marin City. You know, they he still had boys there. Next thing you know, uh, Pac and the dude get into an argument and they start going at it. After this breaks down and they have their little communication laps, you have the guy feeling owned, like Pac owned him. So one of Pac, all the homies get into it, come up and starts getting into it with his buddy and he wanted to swing on him. And the dude wanted to swing on him too. They was just gonna let, you know, like we'll see you later on tonight. It ain't happened like that. It went down right then and there, punches was thrown. Next thing you know, one of the shorties that was with Pac went for a pistol and pulled and a little kid got killed at the park. And when this happened, the people started blaming Tupac for the entire incident. Pac was already moving out. His people were moving out. Pac ran up the block. He had to hide under a car because people were throwing rocks and everything else. And the police had to come and escort him out of the situation. That's how bad it got. In the ensuing incident, Tupac was punched in the face. And amidst the scuffle, a gunshot rang out. Tupac and his crew made a run for the car to get away from the growing crowd, but soon learned that the gunshot had come from Tupac's crew and that a six-year-old boy named Kaid Walker Teal had been killed by a single shot to the head. Although no one would ever be charged in Kaid's death, Tupac would settle a wrongful death lawsuit for about $500,000 several months later. This would be the catalyst for Tupac finally leaving the Bay Area and settling in Los Angeles permanently. While the violence of young Kaid was weighing heavily on Tupac's conscience, a presidential race was playing out across the nation between George H.W. Bush, Ross Perot, and Bill Clinton. Vice President Dan Quayle had targeted rap lyrics for promoting violence against police, and soon, Tupac was in the presidential crosshairs. There is absolutely no reason for a record like this to be published by a responsible corporation. Things at me. He said, take my shit up off the shelf. Now, if that ain't hit me, what is? I'm talking about the vice president of the country you live in. His lyrics being a focal point for ensuing violence against police officers nationwide. As a result, his sophomore record began receiving pressure from the record labels to soften its message in fear of governmental repercussions. This infuriated Tupac, but he bowed to the pressure. While the government called for Tupacalypse Now to be pulled from music shells, Time Warner, Interscope's parent company, began distancing themselves from Tupac as an artist. Tupac felt censored. His music was the voice of the oppressed in his mind, and the restrictions were limiting his ability to express the plight of the oppressed. With several of his songs having to be replaced from the roster of his sophomore album, Tupac made the decision to change his album title from the original Troublesome 21 to Strictly For My N-I-G-G-A-Z, as he viewed it as an album for the oppressed. This would give birth to Tupac's famous 50 biggest tattoo, which represented the philosophy that 50 black men together, all in alignment, can change the world if they work together towards a common goal. This concept would evolve into the Thug Life movement. 
the thug life movement was predicated around shifting the negative connotation of the word thug into a positive acronym representing the hate you give little infants f's everybody it would be a movement that tupac's mentors would struggle to understand and even after codifying the rules of the thug life movement many could not stand behind it with conviction to include his closest mentors like mutulu who helped tupac flesh out the movement while cautioning against it as tupac's rise of fame began gaining momentum he realized that he needed a dedicated team that meant having a manager that only catered to him. In his authorized autobiography written by his childhood friend Stacy Robinson, she points out that Tupac gave Atron, his second manager after Layla Steinberg, the ultimatum to drop all his other artists and just manage him. But Tupac was only one of Atron's artists and he didn't feel comfortable turning his back on his other artists, regardless of how great Tupac's career was taking off and he chose to step aside. Tupac made the decision to move forward with Watani, who although knew little about the music business, was skilled enough to take the reins of Tupac's management. It would be Watani who encouraged Tupac to move away from the thug branding and recommended Outlaw as a more favorable option, which would eventually be given as a name for his up-and-coming rap group, The Outlaw Immortals. Watani, who had brought Tupac to South Central Los Angeles as part of his new African Panthers movement prior to him being signed in early 1990-1991, realized that Tupac would need to understand how to move around Los Angeles after he relocated from the Bay Area. His introductions indirectly connected Tupac to Tyrus Big Psych Himes. Big Psych would become a close friend of Tupac's and would be a member of the Outlaw Immortals. Tupac's music would quickly begin embracing his new environment as those experiences became centermost in his life. The Hughes brothers, who Tupac had worked with on several of his videos, reached out to Tupac to play a minor role in a film they were producing and filming called Menace to Society. Tupac was slated to play the role of Sharif, a Muslim convert who struggled to navigate the volatile life of Los Angeles in the 1990s amidst the gang culture. Tupac used his established relationship to get Jada Pinkett a role in the film, but due to irreconcilable differences with the script, Tupac would be unceremoniously fired from the film, resulting in an altercation with the Hughes brothers. This would eventually land Tupac in jail, where he would serve 15 days for the assault after a bold confession to the crime on MTV. His legal woes would continue to escalate, but Tupac continued to keep it real. Between 1992 and 1994, Tupac really, like after that album that he dropped, his first album that he dropped, and then the movie of Juice, his career was really on a skyrocket. Right. If any group of years was like his most amount of work that he ever did, 1992 to 1994 was a big part of all that work. Right. I kind of feel like every artist goes through this trajectory of when they first start out, they kind of have an idea of the direction they're going and then they come into their own and they find their voice and they and they're so their stuff changes a little bit and it gets better. They learn that they like delivering their message in a in a different way than they initially did, that it's that it's more powerful or it's more theatrical, you know. And so I think this is kind of where Tupac's learning to mesh the life that he knew, the life that he's coming into and putting his message out in a way that really had a big impact. And so I think right. that's why his music changed. Yeah. And I also think that when he was in the Bay Area and even coming from Baltimore and like he wasn't exposed to a lot of gang activity. So that's not really in his upbringing. Right. But when he moves to LA, now he's in the center of, you know, he's in gangland basically. 
And that's a different culture. And he's learning that culture through big psych. Right. One thing that I think is, was very impactful during this time is that there was a lot of presidential pressure. You know, there was a lot of governmental pressure against rap lyrics and against promoting lyrics that had to do with killing police officers. This is around the time of the Rodney King beatings and the LA riots. And so there was a lot of presidential pressure to censor rappers from speaking. But the message that Tupac had in his music was about the people who were being mistreated, being oppressed, being beaten like Rodney King was. And so he felt like his voice was being quieted right and it bothered him but he's also an artist and he also has to find a way to navigate around those restrictions and he needs the record label to put his music out and the truth of the matter is is that in any occupation no matter where you're making your money there's going to be politics yeah true and unfortunately that's just part of you have to figure out a way to get your message out in the way that you want to but also mitigate that political mess that some people can find themselves in and that they don't even mean to find themselves in. And I, but I think that as an artist, this is also your ability to become creative because now you've got to find a way to get your message out while navigating the blockers. Now you've got to be a little bit more creative. You can't just say F the police. Now you've got to hide that message in in innuendos and double entendres mm -hmm. and like, you know, so you have to be a lot more creative with your music in order to communicate what you're trying to communicate. You start using code words like five O and one time and 12. And like, now you're not saying F the police, like straight right. up, like, you know, which is the same thing that they did back when you had like the Beatles where they yeah. were using different words to mean different things when they were talking about drugs or where they were keeping themselves from cursing, you know, they were finding other ways to still deliver their message, but it just was not so blatant. Right. Yeah. To those who were concerned. Yeah. Now, uh, Vice President Dan Quayle made it his personal mission to pull Tupac's records off the shelf. Like they were trying to pull Tupacalypse off the shelf and Interscope kind of put their foot down and was like, no, we're not doing that. So they, they stood behind Tupac, but they did tell him, your next record needs to be a little softer. Right. And there again, that's also a political move because Interscope doesn't want to make it seem like politics can impact what they're doing. That sets a precedent. But at the same time, they know that the reality is like, hey, we can't continue to push the envelope and think that at some point we're not going to get, you know, we're, we're not going to see some type of backlash from it. Right. Tupac's trying to find his philosophy. Right. And that originally comes out as the 50 nits, which is a tattoo that he has on his chest. And then it has the AK underneath it. Basically saying that 50 guys together can do anything in the world without weapons. Right. Right. And that eventually turns into the thug life philosophy. Well, basically what he did was he sat down with Matulu. He sat down with some some of the OGs, um, the leaders in rival gangs, and he wanted to come up with rules that they would all follow that protected their communities and made it to where they weren't selling drugs and ruining families to where they weren't mistreating their women. Like they were a good set of, you know, something to start from. Nothing's going to be perfect overnight, but he spent a lot of time to come up with something that would 
create change in the communities that meant a lot to him. I think a big part of that too was trying to retake back the word thug and trying to like take that word that had a negative connotation. Tupac was was seeing himself and his friends and the people that he cared about being viewed as thugs. And he was like, well, if I could take this word that's ugly and nasty and and denotes the worst of, of society and turn it into something positive, I can reclaim that word kind of like how we did with the N-word. Right. And I don't think that he was able to really do that. I think his intent was good. It was. But I think that in order to really claim the word and turn it into something positive, the actions behind it also have to be positive. And so if, if you're having altercations and you're beating up the, the limo driver and you're beating up the movie producer and you're like your thug movement doesn't get that positive vibe to it. It keeps that negativity of thug life is all about just being brash and doing it your way and, and being violent when you need to be violent. And that's not really what Tupac's goal was right? with thug life. So I think he came up short and I think eventually that, that philosophy goes away. Right. He has, he's forced to change it when he realizes it doesn't work. What's your thought on Tupac firing Atron or letting him go? Even if it would have been a mistake for him, I think that's part of your progression as an artist is just like with your kids learning of kind of finding their own way. You may not be doing things like you can't be the best version of yourself if you're trying to be like everybody else. And so he wasn't going with the cookie cutter mold of, well, everybody who gets a manager, the manager has multiple artists. Like he's like, look, I want whoever my manager is to only focus on me, even if maybe you're not known as the best manager right now. I want you to be the best manager for me. And I actually think that was pretty solid move. Um, because you've got one person who's solely focused on you and getting you where you need to be. That's pretty smart. Yeah, I think that was a boss move. Yeah. And Atron also made a boss decision as well to say, well, I'm not turning my back on my other artists that I've already made promises to and that I'm already, he was still managing Digital Underground. Right. Like I'm not Plus, turning my back on those guys. I'm I, I, I'm going to step down. Plus I can see where it's it's a little bit, it's like putting all your eggs in one basket. And so for somebody who's been managing people for a while, there's some politics there too, because now artists will say, you know, hey, he's just going to turn his back on you. Don't even try hire him because he, he's not going to be worth it. So it would have been at a, at a huge risk to him for him to have done that. And he doesn't know if at that point in time, yeah, Tupac's doing well, but is he going to be the kind of artist that's going to give him the financial security he's going to need after making a move like that? Right. And his business would have been predicated solely on Tupac. Right. Which yeah. is risky. Yeah, it is risky. Yeah. One of the first things they teach you about investing is diversification. Right. Yeah. You don't want to have just one stock. Right. Like, you know, and, and that's kind of probably how he was looking at it at the time. Right. Because then if that one stock plummets, all your money's gone. All your money's gone. Yeah. So, you know, you're thinking about your family. You're thinking about the politics of it. You're thinking if you can recover from it. So, it, you know, I think they both made good moves, honestly. Yeah. As he took Watani on as a manager, one of the first moves that Watani did was to help Tupac understand the gang culture in Los Angeles by connecting him with, you know, certain individuals in the gang culture that eventually connected Tupac with Big Psych. Right. What are your thoughts on that, on that, on that strategy and that tactic? I think that there was some importance there because even though Tupac wasn't really a gangster, 
he was in an environment and performing music that gangsters related to, that thugs related to, that would be popular in those areas, that would be popular in the communities that he wanted to create positive change. And so the reality is, in order for you to understand the people, you have to go where the people are. And so I think it was important for him to learn that. And unfortunately, I think that one of the mistakes that Tupac made was getting involved too much with that lifestyle, even though he wasn't really, but he he put himself in a compromising position. Yeah, he would eventually do that. I agree with you. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that there are a lot of politics in the gang culture. Right. If you don't understand how to navigate those politics, you can break rules that you don't know about. Right. And typically those rules have repercussions that you don't know about. If you don't grow up in that environment, you don't know the specifics. I think that that was a smart move on, on Watani's part because it's very easy to say the wrong thing on a record and piss off a whole group of people and make them your enemy and not know that you did it. Right. So I think that that exposure was positive, but I think you're right. I think sometimes you can get caught up in that energy too much and then try to live that lifestyle. You see a lot of people nowadays that don't become gang members until they're making millions of dollars. Right. You know, and then they're all of a sudden like, well, now I'm a Pyru or now I'm a I'm a Crip or whatever. And you weren't that when you were broke, but now you want to be a part of that energy. And that brings you into some dangerous territory. Right. Because now you're pulling people around you, even if they're not part of your inner circle, you're pulling people around you who come with risk. Yeah. And I think if you talk to anybody who grew up in that culture and that gang culture, especially in Los Angeles, where it was very, very prevalent and very, very deadly, you would realize a lot of those guys are trying to leave that lifestyle, right. trying to get their families out of that environment, not bring them there like you know so it's a little bit of a reversal and the truth of the matter is that for males and females both who come from that type of environment when you have somebody who's doing well so somebody who becomes an artist that really is resonating with people and it's creating positivity in your communities you really have to protect that person yeah from being involved in situations so you need to have mentors that are saying hey look man you can't hang around in the old hood because you're going to be around the wrong kind of people. You're going to be associated with the wrong kind of people. You know, you're going to have people showing up in your music videos when the FBI are tracking people or, you know, and suddenly you're, you become part of that hood or that culture or that, that gang. And we need to protect you from that because you're elevating yourself to a platform where you can create change for us. And so we need to protect you from that. And, yeah. and that really needs to be the goal in those situations. And you see a lot of guys like even, even Suge Knight did not grow up in the gang culture, but when he had money, he bought his way into the gang culture. And then that became like his power. Like he, his powers was rooted in his connections to the gangs. So here you have Suge Knight and you have Tupac who are both infused with this energy from these gang members, but don't have the roots in the gang. 
Right. So they don't understand all the politics. And what happens is that a right. lot of them, what they do is because they want to be able to have that influence in those different areas is that they get themselves in a situation where they're like paying for protection. They're bringing those guys in to make sure that things don't happen because they know the kind of people that show up to those events. And so then they end up kind of the like that web kind of starts to get a little messy. On February 16th, 1993, Tupac's sophomore album, Strictly For My N-I-G-G-A-Z, released selling just over 38,000 records, debuting in the top 25 on the U.S. Billboard 200. The album surpassed heavy hitters like rock stars Bon Jovi and the Beatles' own Paul McCartney. His first single, Holla If You Hear Me, fell short of the number one spot but propelled Tupac's lyrics to the masses. During this time, Jada Pinkett returned the favor of some screen time by pulling some strings to have Tupac as a guest appearance on her show, A Different World. It would be here where Tupac would be introduced to lifelong friend Jasmine Guy, who starred in the offshoot series of The Cosby Show. Tupac was rubbing shoulders with heavy Hollywood players and attending major Hollywood events. He would be seen taking Rosie Perez to the Soul Train Awards, where she would introduce Tupac to Madonna, a mega rock star at the time, and the two would begin dating. With Tupac's music charting and positive reviews for his two major films drawing positive feedback, Tupac should have been in the news for his accomplishments. Unfortunately, it was his behavior that the media continued to elevate to the public. An altercation that spring with the limo driver in Hollywood on March 13th spoke of a violent attack when the limo driver attempted to enforce the rules of the rented limousine service. Less than a month later, Tupac was arrested in Lansing, Michigan for swinging a bat at rapper Chauncey Wynn at a university show over who would rap first in the show. It would be around this time at the shoot for his video, I Get Around, that he had recorded with the Digital Underground, that Digital Underground frontman Shock G approached Tupac with a warning. I Get Around was the time I pulled Pac out of the party and I said, yo, they got two more hits on you. They already had two in Oakland, now they got two in LA. Four people are paid to kill you. Take it easy. Take my key, live in my condo while I'm on tour. Watch the Jeffersons, relax. You know what Pac told me? He said, you finish? You don't get it, do you? I don't give a fuck. And walked away. And before he got out of sight, he looked back one last time and went. So Pac was ready. He was ready. He knew he was done here. On to his next planet. On to his next adventure. Maybe he was reincarnated on Earth. Who knows, but Pac wasn't worried about death. He was not scared of death. There were two known street hits that had been put out on Tupac. He had a price on his head and he needed to calm down. In an impromptu studio meeting with Warren G, an original member of Snoop Dogg's 213 rap group and stepbrother for Dr. Dre, who had been left behind while Dr. Dre and Snoop left on their chronic tour, Tupac and Warren G recorded Definition of a Thug and how long will they mourn me? In response to the fresh news that Big Sykes' close friend and financier, Big Cato, had been murdered in Los Angeles. During this time, what most did not know was that Suge Knight, the infamous CEO of Death Row Records, was interested in Tupac as an artist and had approached him about joining the quickly growing record label. But Tupac was working on his own label. He intended to have his own record label and his own artists. 
He had just made the decision to change the record label from Underground Railroad to Out of the Gutter Records. But his team advised Tupac to wait on pushing out new music on his label until he had solidified his place on the charts. It would be around this time that Tupac, finding himself with missing patches of hair due to the stress of his life, that he made the decision to shave his head bald. He had in fact been diagnosed with alopecia areata, which caused hair to fall out in clumps. In July 1993, Poetic Justice finally hit the theaters. Tupac had recently befriended an up-and-coming New York rapper by the name of Christopher Wallace, who went by the moniker Notorious B.I.G. or Biggie Smalls. They had met during the filming of Poetic Justice, and the two became good friends. In the summer of 1993, Tupac published his Thug Life album under his Out of the Gutter Records label, and Interscope backtracked their unsupportive stance in the midst of Tupac's newfound popularity, and they signed the fledging Out of the Gutter Records to a distribution deal. Tupac seemed to have everything falling into place. He purchased his first home in Atlanta, Georgia, a home he titled Thug Mansion. He was already working on his fourth album, Me Against the World, and new movie projects kept falling into his lap. A new John Singleton movie titled Higher Learning, which had been written specifically for Tupac, however, remained in a hold pattern as the studio executives remained fearful of Tupac's continuous legal woes. Another film, Above the Rim, was casting in New York, and Tupac was invited to star in the film as Bertie, another gangster role like that of Bishop from the movie Juice. It would be during this time that Tupac would find himself in another legal situation when he confronts two racist police officers in Atlanta, Georgia, exchanging gunfire with the two off-duty police, shooting both officers. Although no charges would be brought up against Tupac, the incident kept Tupac on the trajectory towards calamity. In October of 1993, Tupac would meet the venerable gangster Haitian Jack in a chance meeting in New York while filming Above the Rim. Haitian Jack would later take credit for pulling Tupac out of the baggy jean outfits and hoodies, a wardrobe symbolic of the youth across all hoods throughout America, and putting him in the designer brands of the mafioso and real gangsters of New York, Versace and Louis Vuitton. He would claim to give Tupac his first Rolex watch. Tupac would use Haitian Jack's persona as the muse and motivation for his character Birdie. With the two men fueling each other's egos about how gangsta each could be, many warned Tupac about the risk of the relationship, but none as ardent as Mike Tyson and Biggie Smalls. Tupac ignored those warnings and continued to be a lion cub amongst lions. The relationship would come to a breaking point in November of 1993 when Ayanna Jackson would come forward with claims of a sexual assault that had occurred in Tupac's residence, where he lived while filming Above the Rim. The accusation would involve more than just Tupac, but it would be Tupac alone who would stand trial for the assault. The warnings from Watani and Man Man, the warnings from Mike Tyson and Biggie would finally resonate and Tupac, feeling that he had been set up by Haitian Jack, began to separate himself from the gangster. I tell people, you don't really know Pac, because Pac don't even know Pac. He got the right name. There's definitely two Pacs there. It's not one, it's two of them. Pac was all good when I was doing good things to him. Until we caught that punk-ass case that was easily could have been beaten by both of us. 
The singer was arrested Thursday night after a woman claimed that he and three other men overpowered her in a hotel suite. He let his attorneys churn him against me. And that's the part that I'll never forgive him for because it, I'm going to ride or die with you, homie. I expect you to do the same. See, that's what I call a fair weather friend. Everything's good when everything's good, you know? But as soon as we catch a punk ass case, right? You start telling me, oh, I can't talk to you, my attorneys. I'm like, what? You ain't who you say you are, my nigga. You ain't no gangster. No gangster's attorney can tell him not to talk to his man. He'd be like, listen, bro, just do your job as an attorney. That's my man, okay? And then Pac and Madonna started hanging out. The problem with Pac and Madonna, he liked it, her. And she realized that he wasn't who he said he was. Pac wasn't no gangster. And they told her, I was that dude. Some about, well, you know, Jack's with Madonna, and Madonna don't seem to be too into you anymore. And he's like, well, if you got a problem with the girl, right? Deal with her, bruh. Don't bring no man into this, man. Cause I'm a man, my don't play no games with me, Playboy, because I'm going to take you there. Hey there, fellow true crime enthusiasts and body of crime listeners. As true crime lovers, we're excited to deep dive the Tupac series with our listeners. But before we dive into the dark and mysterious world of crime, I want to tell you about a fantastic local art studio right here in Houston, Texas that you won't want to miss. It's called Province 8 Art Studio, and they have a massive selection of original art to include a large selection of urban and hip-hop art that truly captures the essence of our city. If you're local, then you can find them at 17037 Farm to Market road 529 is just a stone throw away from where our podcast is produced it's truly a mecca for all things creative from poetry open mic nights recording studio sessions to art classes this is truly a one-stop art depot for the truly creatives but what makes province 8 art studio even more special is their incredible tupac shakur art pieces of which they have several to include our tupac series cover art i'm sure you've seen it on the latest episodes cover tupac playing a guitar standing in front of a microphone capturing the raw energy of his music and spirit. This is an original six foot by four foot canvas piece by Ezra Hezekiah for sale and it can be purchased and shipped worldwide. They ship worldwide? They do. Even six foot pieces like jamming out Tupac? They do. Bigger ones than that. And by going directly to the artist's webpage at www.blackrhinoartgroup.com, you can pick and choose the material, the size, and even the format of your choosing if you're not ready to splurge on the original. You can even get special edition prints, original paintings, digital art. There's so many options. And if you're a decorator like me, you might want to throw in some throw pillows. You might want to get you an ashtray. Might even want to get you some swag. The attention to detail and the way they bring Tupac to life through art is truly remarkable. Remarkable. It's a must-see for any Tupac fan or anyone who really truly appreciates the fusion of art and hip-hop culture. So listeners, do yourself a favor and check out Province 8 Art Studio. Visit their website at www.province8artstudio.com or pay them a visit in person. You'll be blown away by their urban and hip-hop art collection and of course that incredible Tupac Shakur piece. Support local artists and immerse yourself in a world of art inspired by the legends of hip-hop. Province 8 Art Studio is where creativity meets culture. Tell them Joe or Crystal from Body of Crime sent you. We'll post a link in the show notes. In 1993, Tupac's his second album does way better than his first album. 
And I think this is where the positive benefits of him having been censored really plays in his favor. Because in this album, he makes more party anthems, more songs that are about drinking and hanging out and dancing. And, you know, he makes songs like Holler If You Hear Me and things like that that are not as street. And this allows a lot more crossover and brings in a new fan base. And this gives him the support from the record labels when they see this level of, of fanship for him. This gives the record label the support to say, we're going to support your record label. And they give him that distribution deal. Right. And that's a beautiful thing because like, you know, like we said earlier, is that when you're forced to find a way around something or through something, it forces you to become more creative. Right. And so this allowed for him as an artist, as a creative person to tap into that and to build on his level of creativity, which obviously he did and he did very well. Right. Tupac is still going through his legal woes. He gets into the fight in the limo. He gets into the fight at the university. With him being more creative and him being able to come out with things that, that were breaking him into that a little bit more gradually, that really did well for him. However, because at this point in time where they were trying to say that rap music or hip-hop music was attached to the thug life, the gangster life, Anything he did that was perceived as being against the law, against the police was highlighted. And it's, that just happens to be, you know, it's about views. I hate to say it, yeah. but the news is going to cover things and put things out that get them views. And when you have an artist whose trajectory is going, is skyrocketing, what better than to share his failures? Yeah. His, his mistakes. Yeah. I think that's what gets views. People love to see the underdog win and reach the top, but they don't love it as much as they love to see that guy also fall from the heights of that success. That's true. And it's so unfortunate, but I think what it really comes down to, to me, is that for the people who are not succeeding or who don't have the drive to not give up, I think it makes them feel like the person is more like them. Yeah. So when you fail, okay, well, you're not as perfect as right. everybody thinks you're just you like are. us. It, yeah, you're just yeah. like us. So Suge Knight approaches Tupac about signing with Death Row, and Tupac rejects the offer. He's not ready to sign with Death Row. He's doing his own thing. He's got his own record label that he's coming out with, and this is Suge Knight's first approach at trying to poach this artist. Tupac is not in a position where he feels like he needs, he wants to own his own things. He wants to have his own movie production. He wants to have his own music, music record label. He wants to have his own artist. Like he doesn't want to be an employee. He wants to be a boss. And this, you know, plays out in this situation. A lot of people talk about Jada Pinkett and her comments um, in her newly released book where she talks about Tupac having alopecia. And in his autobiography, it's identified that he did have alopecia. So it's true. I see a lot of people saying, oh, he never had alopecia, but he did. Right. Yeah. And they say that diagnosis was a autoimmune system disease that is as a result of stress. So he was a very, very stressed guy who had a lot of worries. And I've also heard people say that he was supporting like a group of 40 people. 
He was, he was, he was. So the stress of that, think about just trying to support a regular size family yeah. of four. So you think entanglements cause stress? Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yes, entanglements <laughs> definitely cause stress. Jada. <laughs> um, and so Tupac and Biggie become friends. And I think Biggie had a lot of love for Tupac. I know they fell out. I know they eventually fall out. But I think at the very beginning, Tupac really opened up opportunities for Biggie. And he mentored Biggie. He talked to Biggie. He taught Biggie the lessons that he learned from Haitian Jack. He taught those to Biggie. Right. He talks about, I taught you how to wear Versace. I taught you how to wear Gucci, how to wear Louis Vuitton. Like I taught you those, those things that he raps about. Right. You know, Biggie raps about that. And, and, and Tupac goes on to say, the stories that he's telling in his music are my stories. But I believe that they had a genuine friendship. And I believe that Biggie really loved Tupac. And they fell out. And I think he felt bad about that. And Biggie's one of the guys that came to him and said, hey, watch your back with this guy, Haitian Jack. Biggie is from the streets. Biggie came up in the streets. Right. Mike Tyson came up in the streets. They know about Haitian Jack. And they're all warning him, hey, like you're out of your element. You're a guppy swimming in an ocean with sharks and you don't even know it. And, you know, I don't think he understood that because I right. think I think he was feeling the power of who his mom was and who Matulu were. And I think in his mind, he was thinking that that, that garnered a certain level of respect and power that it really didn't. Not in the gangster world. In a situation in Atlanta, so the shooting with the two police officers, one of the things that I find disturbing in that situation is that Tupac, the star, is the guy with the gun. The boss never holds the gun. The boss always has shooters. The boss never is the one holding the weapon. The boss's ability to generate revenue is his weapon. To have employees who do those things on your request and on your demand or on your order, that's how a boss moves. Right. A boss is not a shooter. Typically, even on the streets, the guy who pulls the trigger is the expendable guy. Right. The guy that you can afford to lose. You don't give the gun to the boss. You the can't guy, afford to lose the boss. The guy who, who looks like the stereotype of the thug, not yeah. the guy in the nice suit. That's and right. The nice shoes. That's right. That's unarmed. I don't know if it was maybe Tupac wasn't in a position to learn this lesson yet, or he didn't have the right mentorship at the time to pull him to the side and go, look, if you want to be a boss, then you have to do boss shit. You have to move like a boss. And shooting at police officers, off-duty police officers, and trying to help. So I understand he was trying to help someone, and, and maybe that was, you know, that was a, a positive thing. But you have guys for that. Right. And I don't think that Tupac understood that at that point in time. And you have to understand is that even when he died, he was young. He was still young. He was. That's true. And even though he was, he also had some, like, I also think even at a young age, like his interview when he was 17, he was extremely wise, but right. there was things he had not yet experienced in life himself. Right. That were areas where he didn't have that wisdom yet. And so he didn't understand the importance of protecting the platform that he was going to have to create change. And he couldn't be associated with those types of things on the streets. He just couldn't. Right. No, you're right. And I think that's the, that's the message 
that Maya Angelou was trying to teach him. Right. When she sat him down and she had a conversation with him. That was the level of mentorship that he needed to be getting constantly from the people that were around him. Right. It's devastating to be surrounded by yes men who go, oh yeah, boss, yeah, boss, that was great. You just shot two guys. That was great. No, you're a rock star. You're a movie star. Right. You're generating millions of dollars and you're feeding hundreds of people. You're even feeding people you don't know you're feeding. It's learning how to play chess. 100%. It's learning how to think two and three and four and five moves ahead. Yeah. So in, instead of saying in this moment, I'm going to, I'm going to respond this way. Instead, you're, you're taking a step back, even sometime if it's, if it's seconds to say, I can't be associated with this because right. three moves down or four moves down or five moves down, this impacts the greater good that I can do. And he just didn't understand that at that right. point in time. Right. And you can't say that people in a circle weren't giving him guidance because he got it from Biggie. He got it from Mike Tyson he got it from Watani. He got it from Man Man. Like, look, dude, you're you're navigating murky waters with predators, and you're not a predator. Right. You're an actor. And and you know that's you got to think like your kids when you tell your kids something, you know how things are going to end up, and you tell them, hey, you can't do this. Hey, and. Some of our kids just got to learn those lessons on their own, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And you hope they survive those lessons. You hope, right. you hope the lesson that they learn on their own, they're recoverable. And guess what? He has a recoverable lesson. And it doesn't resonate. As Tupac entered 1994, his focus was on defending himself against the Ayanna Jackson rape charges. During this time of vulnerability, he began courting and dating Keisha Morris, a John Jay College criminal justice major who he met at a nightclub, and the two began spending a lot of time together. Unfortunately, John Singleton in Columbia pulled the higher learning role from Tupac almost immediately, editing and handing it off to Ice Cube instead. Tupac began pouring all of his resources into defending himself against the rape allegations. He began making the talk show rounds, expressing his disappointment of being wrongly accused, and asking where his co-defendants were. As he was battling his case, he continued to work on movies and his music. He knew he could be facing 25 plus years, and this could be his last opportunity to fully express himself in both his music and in his acting. The distance that Tupac had created between himself and Haitian Jack came to a boiling point. Tupac had made some disparaging statements about Haitian Jack being a hanger-on or a groupie. He had been ignoring and not acknowledging Haitian Jack in and around town, and Haitian Jack was beginning to feel disrespected, placing Tupac in a very dangerous position. In the fall of 1994, Tupac began filming the movie Bullet, where he played Tank, a one-eyed drug dealer, alongside movie star Mickey Rourke. On November 30th, Tupac received a page from gangster and music executive Jimmy Henchman, who was a close friend of Haitian Jack, asking if he would be down to do a feature on a Little Sean song. He was offering $7,000 for the verse, and Tupac needed the money. He had lost revenue due to the rape trial and was investing all his resources in his legal defense. On his way to the Quad Studios, Tupac had gotten lost and arrived late to the studio in Times Square. He had been smoking a lot of weed and he was not focused on his surroundings, although he was armed and carrying two weapons, two 9mm Glocks. Of his entourage, he was the only one that was armed. 
He passed a man dressed in army fatigues as he entered the studio, and the man avoided his gaze, which was a typical of those who met Tupac, since either they were fans or haters, but both generally acknowledged him. This guy did not acknowledge him at all. As they approached the elevator, two gunmen approached from behind and ordered the group down on the ground and ordered them to remove their jewelry. Tupac, of course, refused. Instead, he reached for his gun, prompting the robbers to open fire. Tupac would later say that his assailants shot him five times. They took $40,000 worth of jewelry from the men before disappearing. Tupac's first call was to Keisha Morris, who he asked to call his mom, and his second call was to 911. So 1994 for Tupac was all about defending himself against this trial. All the money he generated that year was pretty much focused on staying alive, feeding his family, and going into his legal defense. All his work was centered around that. And you know what happens to people when they get canceled. Once something negative about you is in the news, you're almost toxic. No one wants to touch you because they don't know what's going to happen with your legal situation. So even though he hasn't been found guilty yet, in the eyes of society, he's untouchable. We don't want to put him in movies. We don't want him in commercials. We don't want to endorse him. We don't want to promote him. We don't, because they don't want to be tied to the stigma of that abuse charge, not knowing where it's going to go. And you know what that is? What? That's business impact analysis. Yeah, it it sure is. So you're looking at the probable impact to your business down the road and if that risk is worth it. And a lot of times it's not. So same with the decisions you're making with who you're going to surround yourself with, whether that's closely or a little bit further out. It's, you know, the people around you are still very important. Same with hearing that he was the only one that had firearms on him. You're the artist. The business impact of that is there's going to be a heavier impact for you having the firearms than for your entourage to have the firearms. Right. So why would you take that risk? It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And when you think about it, think about this. If his entourage would have had the weapons and his entourage responded by pulling out a gun he would have got shot. Right. Protected him. Yeah. But also now, Tupac has the financial resources to put you in a hospital, take care of you, give you the care that you need, take care of your family while they're coming to see you in the hospital. He has the resources to to take care of that situation. And the money's not impacted. Right. And I know that's a cold way to look at it, but everyone has a role. Absolutely. And the person who's leading the, the movement is not the guy with the guns. Right. And you really do have to do this business impact analysis in all your settings. Yeah. (laughs) Even in life, honestly, because every decision you make has a repercussion, positive or negative. Waves. Yeah, there's definitely waves. And so you need to be aware when you go to make a decision what those waves are going to be and decide whether or not that impact or that possible impact is worth it. Yeah. Because if it's not worth the possible impact, then it's probably not a decision that you should make. And I'm going to tell you, this is something that street guys learn. This is something street guys learn because on the streets, there are real repercussions for decisions that are made. You know, you shouldn't be easily accessible and you just shouldn't be exposed in that way. And, you know, a lot of times I think about my son does music 
and we've talked about security that you use and we think differently. And one of the things that I talked to him about is due to my military background is the importance of having somebody that understands the streets and somebody that understands combat because not everybody's from the streets has been in serious gunfights and people who have been in combat don't understand the streets. And so it's a very different, but very important role when you're looking at security for protecting you and your family, but you can't be easily accessible. You're a VIP. You can't be easily replaced. So you need to be the least untouchable person. Another error that's made by Tupac in this situation in this particular year is how he disassociates himself from Haitian Jack. And this really speaks to his non-understanding of the power of how real gangsters move. And even in situations where they're enemies, real gangsters respect their enemies. They don't disrespect them. And so that's one of the, the, the comments that have been made about Tupac in a situation with Haitian Jack is that by speaking negatively about Haitian Jack and saying he was a hanger on or a groupie, he disrespected a person who is feared by everybody else and is not to be ridiculed without repercussions, a person who can touch you. And so, and even in ignoring him in social settings and not giving him the respect that he deserves for his status on the streets is dangerous. Right. You know, that's like going to John Gotti or to Al Capone and being disrespectful to one of those guys who, with one flick of a finger, like five shooters are at you. You know what and I'm saying? And not just you, your entire family. Exactly. Like there's repercussions. And I think his approach and how, yeah, he distanced himself, but the way that he did it didn't have the decorum of street respect. Right. And that exposed him to the robbery from Jimmy Henchman. Because Jimmy Henchman and Haitian Jack were friends. There's no way Jimmy Henchman would have moved against Haitian Jack's person without that understanding that it was okay to do so. Right. So I think this is what gets Tupac shot at the Quad Studios. I think this is what got got him robbed. And Biggie Smalls was also robbed that year, supposedly for warning Tupac not to hang out with Haitian Jack. So... The robbing is almost like a warning, like we're taking your shit because you were disrespectful. We're not murdering you. We didn't come here to murder you. And I don't think they came there to murder Tupac. I don't think there was a hit and they were trying to kill him. I think they were robbing him to teach him a lesson. Right. The same way they taught Biggie Smalls a lesson. Hey, don't speak out on Haitian Jack or we can touch you. This is a message. I can get to you. And I think this is the message that they were trying to give Tupac. And I think if Tupac would have relaxed and given up the jewelry, $40,000 is not worth your life. It's not. A million dollars is not worth your life. You can replace a million dollars, but you can't replace a person. No. And you know, a lot of times you'll hear a lot of young kids that talk about the importance of respect and especially people who have been to prison and gotten out and it's so important and it's like there's this point that they have to make with people when people disrespect them. And what you have to understand is that Things work differently in different settings, and you have to know that. You have to know that you can't, in a work setting, speak to somebody the way that you did in prison. Right. It, it ain't going to play out the way you think it's going to play out. Right. So 
you have to be aware of that and you have to you have to conduct yourself in a manner that's in alignment with the goals that you're that you're trying to reach and if you're trying to be in movies and you're trying to be a big star there's certain things that you just can't do it's political but you just can't do it yeah and there's a way to react in every environment and 100% it makes absolutely no sense no sense in any in any world that you're in when someone's got you at gunpoint to reach for another gun. It makes no sense. The draw is already on you. Right. At this point, you have to concede. The only way where it's worth it is if you know you're going to get shot, if you know this person's going to kill you, and you think you can get to a gun and also kill the other person. Right. But you're going to lose the gun draw. You know, in the wild, wild west is whoever gets the shot off first. Well, when the gun's already pointing at you, they're going to win that draw. Right. The best thing to do is play along. That's the survival thing to do. Well, and even in when gas stations get robbed yeah. or these different places get robbed and the employee will like try to do something and I'm like, it's not worth it. The business has insurance. You don't right. need to try to save the little bit of money that's in the register. Like it's not right. worth it. Your life is not worth it. Your your safety is not worth it. Like yeah. The mindset is you can't take mine. You can't take something from me. And the reality of it is any something is not worth your life. And now that I'm a lot more mature, and I think Tupac would have eventually gotten to the point where we, he would have had this level of maturity where he would have been like, man, you want my $40,000 worth of jewelry? Go ahead and take it. Not only is it insured, but I got more money. I'll get more jewelry. You're not really winning here. Right. I'm giving you my scraps. I've already wore this jewelry. And you know, I think part of like in his situation in Tupac's situation as he's evolving and gaining wisdom and, yeah. and experiencing different things. I think what would have been very helpful for him is having people in his circle who he really trusted, where he really valued their role. And so you've got to know that you're not a gangster. Like, yeah, you might've grown up in areas where you expect that people who, who are raised in those areas just automatically are going to be your top fans and are going to, you know, give you some kind of respect that you think they're just naturally going to give you. But the truth is, is that you have to understand who you are. And if you're not a gangster, then you need somebody in your circle who understands that life, who can advise you like the president. Right. You yeah. know, same with if you don't understand security, you need somebody in your circle who you trust, who can advise you because you don't understand it. You don't know it. Right. So, you know, and any of your top most successful businessmen and women like they have people around them who who advise them in areas where they're not a hundred percent like that's not their strength or that may even be an area that they don't know hardly anything about right so it's important to have people in your circle who you can trust who have come from that background or educated in that background or experienced in that background that can advise you properly right right no 100 percent between 1992 through 1994, Tupac had skyrocketed in fame. He had gone from a roadie to rock star status in less than three years, and then it all came crashing to a halt as Tupac was found guilty of aggravated sexual battery and was sentenced to 18 months to four and a half years in a maximum security prison. The only other person serving time with him was his friend Man Man. A majority of his album would have been completed at this time, with most of Tupac's recordings having been finished in the year leading up to his conviction. 
Me Against the World would be written during Tupac's most trying times. In a whirlwind of success and failures, wins and losses, Tupac captured his most personal sentiments and experiences in his yet-to-be-released music. But as 1994 came to an end, with Tupac healing and hiding, battling depression, the emergence of a father he didn't know existed, looming incarceration, questionable friendships, he struggled to find meaning in his life and his ability to contribute to the world. His record wasn't done, and he was heading to prison, still healing from both external scars and internal wounds. Stay with us as we continue to deep dive the life and death of Tupac Shakur, as his life takes dips into his lowest points, as he heads into the bowels of Sing Sing Maximum Security Prison. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.